If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find Isaiah chapter 53. We'll actually start with the verses that preceded in context in 52. So Isaiah, the latter part of 52, if you would please. It's good to be back this morning to preach the Word of God in this Easter series. We're titling Portraits of the Passion. As we make our way to Easter, it's about this time of year when I became a Christian several years ago, that I, um, I determined that the best thing I could do was to go into the local synagogue and have a dialogue with the rabbi, which is exactly what I did. And I went to visit the rabbi. His name was Rabbi Serber. He kindly invite, uh, politely invited me into his, um, into his office, and we had a dialogue. And I know it's going to take some of you by surprise, but I, I, uh, I couldn't get a word in edgewise. <laughs> Although I tried. Because I was trying to prevail upon the rabbi that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah from all the scriptures in the Old Testament. And we went back and forth, and he argued back and forth. And of course, as a faithful rabbi, he, he disagreed with me. Uh, but then he very proudly pulled out his, um, his New, New Testament. He said, I want you to know we actually teach the teachings of Jesus here. I said, you do? He goes, yes, we teach the Sermon on the Mount. It's, a, it's wonderful teaching from Jesus. I said, I agree, but in my mind, I thought this is pretty hip hypocritical from somebody who thinks that Jesus was a heretic. Even so, my mind went to John chapter 5, where Jesus was debating with his detractors. He was debating with his enemies. And they, uh, in fact, if you read John 5, they were actually at, already planning, plotting to kill him. And Jesus said these words. He says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. Have you ever read that? In other words, Jesus was saying the scriptures, the only ones they'd had at the time was the Old Testament. He's saying, you're searching the scripture, you're studying the Bible, and they, they're talking about me, and you're not seeing it. Now, if you'll recall, he did the same thing on resurrection morning, evening, rather, with the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. Remember, he unpacked the entire Old Testament to show that they were the things written about him. And, of course, he demonstrated his qualification as the Messiah in life. Even John, as he finishes up the Bible in the book of the Revelation, says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Have you ever read that? So prophecy is basically... Uh, when God would use special men and sometimes women who would predict the future, and of course it would come to pass. And of course, the, there are 300 prophecies of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection listed in the Old Testament. 300. Admittedly, they're not all super clear at first glance. But this one, in Isaiah 52 and 53, this one is so clear that it's quoted verbatim seven times in the New Testament. And referred to, are you ready for this? 50 times in the New Testament, 30 in the gospel alone. This is written 700 B.C. This passage of Scripture is so clear, it is never to this day read in publicly in a synagogue. Did you know that? They won't read it. Not in Rabbi Cerberus synagogue or any other. They will not read this. In fact, many Jews believe that Christians somehow superimposed the passage into the Old Testament because it speaks so clearly of Jesus. <laughs> it's been called a rabbi's torture chamber. 
It's so clear that the Ethiopian eunuch of Acts chapter 8 that Brad referred to last week was saved, became a Christian reading this passage of Scripture, and of course, interpreted to him by Philip the Evangelist. If you'll recall last week, as we've been going through these songs of, uh, of the servant, that is the servant of Jehovah, uh, that is uh, the Lord Jesus, pre-incarnate Lord Jesus, Brad was in uh, Isaiah 50 last week, and he likened Isaiah 50 to an ultrasound. Do you remember that? Yeah, it's, you know, an ultrasound doesn't give you a perfect picture, but it gives you, you pretty much get a good, you know that's a baby there. Well, that's the case, to, to stretch the analogy, Isaiah 53 is like the ultrasound at eight and a half months. It's that clear. And why is it important? Why is clarity so important? The reason John gave us in John's gospel, when he finished it, he said, many other miracles, many other signs Jesus did, but these were written so that you might what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that believing you might have life in his name. So belief, that's that's what we're after here. Do you believe? That's the question. And even Isaiah chapter 53 starts out with that question. Who has believed what he has heard from us? That's always the question. One of the reasons that the Jewish people then and now refuse, and many, and some of you perhaps, refuse to believe is because it didn't fit a suffering Messiah did not fit their theology. Uh, they didn't, the idea of a Messiah that would be beaten, would be tortured, would be crucified, the idea of a, of a Messiah that would come in a non-majestic way, uh, uh, would not light up the world the first time, that just wasn't in their thinking, wasn't in their thinking, and thus they rejected it. And yet their very own scriptures right here teach it. I asked uh, several individuals recently to name things they couldn't look away from. If I asked you, if you were a class today, and I said, I said, what are the things you can't not look at? Forgive the double negative. What are some of the things you can't not look at? And you, right away, some of you would say, oh, you know, a newborn baby. You got to look at the new baby. And we have a new one back here, by the way, today. I won't embarrass you anymore. But one's name's Josh, and the other's uh, Tori. Anyway. Beautiful baby, by the way. She is beautiful. Um, you, I mean, I could, I can't not look at that. And not, another one said, a, a lover's face. Another one said, a beautiful woman. Someone else said, a sunset. And of course, somebody said an accident. You got to look at an accident, right? When you're going by, even when you're driving, you're looking at the accident, you know. And then somebody said, you got to look at the thing you're told not to look at. Isn't that true? You know, especially when you're watching a news report, you say, now listen, the following story has, we want to warn you that it has some disturbing images, and you're like, isn't that true? Well, the image of our Lord Jesus tortured and hanging on a cross to say it was disturbing would be the understatement of the century. And you know the New Testament, you can read all the Gospels, and they don't, even, they don't even attempt to describe the look of Jesus, but not Isaiah. Isaiah writes like he was right there under the cross looking up at Jesus. In fact, 
Look how he puts it in the NLT. It's up on the screen for you. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. Did you know the Bible describes what Jesus looked like? There it is. I asked our staff this last week to read this passage of Scripture. I said, don't go to the commentaries. Don't go to your sermon notes. I just want you to read the text and tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. And a number of them were arrested by the verse you just saw up there. In fact, one of our guys said this. You talk about being arrested. Here's what he said. Well, I thought of roadkill. We went, what? He goes, well, you know, when you go by roadkill, you drive by it and you go, what is that? And I thought, yeah, that pretty much describes what verse 14 is saying. In fact, I thought about the post-scourging, pre-crucifixion of Jesus. Post-scourging, pre-crucifixion, that puts him right next to Pilate, who's standing before all of these Jewish detractors, haters, crucify him! Remember that? And he's already beaten within an inch of his life. That's what the halfway death, that's what they called scourging. And Pilate, in order to sort of elicit sympathy, remember what he said? He said, behold, the man? Let let me tell you, let me translate that for you. Pilate was saying, look at this pathetic piece of flayed Flesh, he bleeds. What God bleeds? Look at him. He's pathetic. What possible threat would he impose upon me or you or the Ro- or Rome or the glory of Rome? That's exactly what he was saying. And today, In this series, Portraits of the Passion, we look at a portrait of substitution. And I have to warn you, it's not an easy picture to look at. But we must look at it. Like Moses when he lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and unless you stared at that bronze serpent, I mean, how stupid can you get? I mean, here's a serpent. It's a bronze serpent. I mean, we've been, we've been bitten by snakes. Give us some medicine. Help us. Stare at the snake, and you'll live. Did that make any sense, humanly speaking? And yet Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Right? As many as believe on him have eternal life. That's our portrait today. And I would encourage you to behold him exalted. Behold him exalted. In one of the most dramatic moments in the life of Christ, it took place just a week before he died. And John records what took place. It almost, when you read it, it almost sounds like he's almost conflicted in his humanness. He says, you know, facing this, he's, what should I say? Father, uh, you know, deliver me from this hour? But it's it's for this hour that I came. 
I know what I'll say. Father, glorify your name. And when he says that, out of the sky comes word that everybody hears, Jesus hears distinctly, the words of the Father saying, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Oh, I just love that. God the Father speaking to God the Son. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And it's almost as if Jesus, with those words from his Father, is re-energized. And he makes this declaration that all of us need to see. He said, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. You've read that, haven't you? I've actually heard people say, well, you know, I, I, we, we lift up Jesus when we sing our praises to him, and we lift up Jesus when we do something for other people, and that's not what he's talking about. The very next verse tells us he did it to describe the way in which he was to die. You got to admit, love him or hate him, no one can ignore the cross of Jesus Christ. And while the resurrection, which we'll celebrate in a few weeks, affirms the good news of the gospel, the cross is the principal means by which Jesus Christ is exalted. And look how Isaiah puts it. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be, say it, Exalted, high, higher, highest. That's the idea. Remember what Paul said in Galatians chapter 6? God forbid that I should glory, that I should boast, that I should brag, except in the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Behold him exalted. Behold his humiliation. Now, Jesus, we saw the text. I showed it up there, disfigured beyond human recognition. This would have been the result of the scourging. Not even barely recognizable at all. Why, again, being tortured? It does beg a question. Why was Jesus so brutally tortured before he died? You say, well, because the Bible predicted it. Good enough. But still, why? I think because Jesus' pre-death torture visibly depicted what he was invisibly enduring by taking on your sins and mine. I think my wife put it best because I put this test to her. She said, when I saw that verse, I thought, that's what my sin did to my Lord. Yep, there you go. In his scourging and in his torture, this humiliation, he depicted what he was taking upon himself for you and me. And when you think about it, Jesus' entire life was humiliating, wasn't it? From the very get-go, he's born in a stable for crying out loud. He's placed in a manger. He's raised up in abject poverty. It bothers some. Does it bother you to know that we, it's like a gap? We, we get this and then boop, all the way till he's 12. We got nothing. Can't we see the rebellious young years? No, they weren't rebellious because he was sinless, amen? But we don't have anything there. There's no record of it. Or is there? Oh, yeah, there is. Right here. Right here. Now, gra- granted, we... We get one little glimpse when he's 12 years old. 
in Luke's gospel, right? Confounding those teachers in the temple. This is the closest thing we have to a description of his upbringing right here in chapter 53 and verse 2. Look at it. He had no, I'm sorry to disappoint you, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Just, just keep that there for a while and look at it. Have you ever read that? This is the description of the, of the, of the body and the presentation of Jesus in his growing up years. One theologian, uh, Bible scholar, pastor, who I actually ad admire, and I'm not going to name him, because here's what he said. Jesus was beautiful in every feature, the most strikingly handsome man who ever lived. I could not disagree more with that statement. That verse alone tells us that's not true. That's not true. No form, that's the word for outline, referring to his body. No majesty, no beauty. In other words, I think this is saying he was very plain looking, maybe very normal looking, unimpressive. It's not like he was walking around and they said, hey, look at the kid with the halo. No, that's not what was going on. Not strikingly handsome, not cool. And why would this even be, why would we even bring this out? Because Jewish expectation was the opposite, that he would have majesty, there would be beauty, he would draw people to him, he'd have a magnetism about him from the get-go. Now, we, we know he did have a magnetism about him later on when he began to do miracles, but not in his growing up years. By the time he was 12, he was getting it. Again, as a result of that 12 years old, I must be about my father's what? Business? He began to see, feel, grieve, know what his mission was, why he was coming, and he was going to die. And remember, the writer of Hebrews says, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He can. But how about you this morning? Are you in the uh, have-not category? You have not cool. You have not handsomeness. You have not pretty. You have not popularity. You have not honor. You have not respect. Hey, you're in good company. Remember what John said? He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world didn't know him, didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and his own people would not receive him, right? But as many as received him, ha, ha to them God gave the right to become the children of God. Behold his humiliation. Behold his compassion. Now, Isaiah says this in beginning of verse 3. He says, he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now, a lot of people read that and they think, well, yeah, that's what was going on when Jesus died. That's talking about his life. That's talking about his perfect life. You can put the verse back up there. That's talking about his perfect life. 
despised, rejected, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, not esteemed, remember his brothers? And yet he's borne our griefs and carried, look at that, our sorrows. Look at the language here. By the way, that last line, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You, I mean, I, I, if you're like me, you think, yeah, that, 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 that happened when he died. No, no, not yet, not yet. We're not there yet. And I know this for a fact because in Matthew 8, 17, after Jesus healed everybody who was sick, it says, thus fulfilled the scripture. And that's the quote you have. That's the quote you have. This is talking about the life the impeccable life and the power of Jesus. Why am I telling you this? Because you're, you are trusting the one who died and rose again for you, but you are trusting a compassionate Savior, one who cares for you. He knows your heavies. He knows your hurts. Behold him as he looks at the leper who comes to him in Mark 1 and says, Lord, if you're willing, I could be cleansed. And Jesus says, I am willing. Behold him as he, as he encounters the widow from Nain. Remember, she's got one son. She's a widow. She's got no husband. She's got one son. Her only means by which she will be supported is dead. Coming out in a, a funeral buyer, Jesus encounters her. And the Bible says he, the Greek says, yearned from the spleen. And the English word translated, he had compassion on her. And what did he do? Raised up the son, gave it back to the mom. Pretty nice thing to do, by the way. Behold him and his compassion. Behold him as he, as he meets the woman with the, with the bleeding issue who touches the garment, the, the fringe of his garment, and he asks, who touched me? I feel the power coming out from me. She confesses it to him, and he says, woman, your faith has made you well. Remember that? Behold him as he encounters the rich young ruler who never does come to know Jesus, but he's very interested. He's intrigued. He loves, he just loves the idea of Jesus. And he comes to Jesus. Remember, Jesus confronts him and he says, uh, have you kept the commandments? Yep, done it all. Jesus listens to him. He leaves out covetousness because that's what he did. He was a covet. He just loved his riches. So because Jesus leaves it out, he says to the rich young ruler, he says, well, look, hey, go, sell, go sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And he went away because he was rich, right? But if you read Mark's account of this, this is so fascinating. In Mark's account, Mark 10, it says this, and Jesus, listen, I'm quoting, looking at him, loved him. And he uses the word agape. Jesus loves everyone. But he has a special affection, of course, for those he saves. This is the compassionate Savior that we have. Behold him at the tomb of Lazarus. And you know what happened there, right? He's been dead for several days. And the greatest thing was when he said, Lazarus, come forth, right? And raise him from the dead. Amen? That was the greatest thing. But the most beautiful thing he did at that tomb was he wept. He wept. Why would he do that? Knowing full well what he was about to do. Because he is a compassionate Savior. Behold his compassion. Some of you are here today where you've got heavy loads. You're struggling for whatever reason. I don't know what it is. It could be your marriage or lack thereof. It could be your health. 
It could be your finances. It just could be you're so burdened by your own sins that are separating you from God. Jesus cares. He cares for you. Do you believe that? That's the question. Isaiah 53, 1, that's the question. Do you believe this? He cares for you. Behold him rejected. Isaiah's writing of Jesus' death here, okay? As if it's a past event. If you read this carefully, and I encourage you to do so on your own, Isaiah's writing like it's a past event. Did you notice that? He's, he's writing like it already happened, yet it has, isn't going to happen for 700 years. He's writing, he, he's sort of representing the Jewish remnant who saw everything that happened to Jesus, his torture, his crucifixion, as he had it coming. That's what God did to that guy who was a phony. In fact, the NLT and chapter 53, verse, at the end of verse 4, perfectly captures that sentiment when it says, we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. That's the idea here. So Isaiah is writing like he's a Jew who has now come to, he's now recognizing how wrong he was. He's repenting of all of this. And to this day, the Jewish people as a whole reject Jesus. Some are coming to know him, praise God. I just witnessed to a Jewish lady just the other day. I see her a couple days a week. We have a friendship. My wife and I do with her, talk to her. And she's an interesting woman. Shared Christ with her again. I talked to her about Easter coming up. And she said, Jesus Christ, leave me alone. And then she winked at me. She goes, see, I made it funny. Except I wasn't laughing. Because if she continues to reject him, one day she will be alone. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, the thing that makes heaven heaven is the thing that makes hell hell, except just the opposite. What makes heaven heaven is the presence of God. And what makes hell hell is the absence of him and being shut out from him. Where are you going to end up? Behold his rejection. Behold his substitution. That's where we got to go today. If you look again, remember, he says at the end of verse 4, yet, I'm looking at the ESV again, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. That's the way we look, used to look at it. And that, that sets up the contrast, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And aren't you glad? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone, each one, to his own way. And yet the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He wasn't dying for his sins. He was dying for our sins, right? So when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins, the word for is not your normal conjunction. That's a Greek word, gar. He uses the word huper. He died on behalf of, that is as a substitute for our sins. That's why Jesus died. And this is, this is crucifixion terminology again, long before it would happen. Verse five, he was pierced for our sins transgressions. That's speaking of crucifixion very clearly. The Phoenicians invented it about 900 
B.C. The Romans perfected it. Jesus embraced it, and we benefit from it. Amen? Everything that happened to Jesus was, in fact, what should have happened to us. All that he, he, him, upon him, you can replace with me, 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 upon me. The truth, this truth is, is increasingly difficult to, to get across in our, gener- in our selfish, self-centered, victimized culture that we live in that sees us as being mistreated, we deserve better, our rights have been violated. But Isaiah is clearly reversing all of this. He's saying we deserve to bear our own griefs and sorrows. We should be eternally punished for our sins. And yet he says, the Lord's servant, Messiah, has taken our place. He's become a substitute for us. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each one to his own way. Nothing new under the sun there, right? Everybody, some of you right now, you're having your own way. It's your own way. It's your own religion. And by the way, he says, and the Lord has laid on him the, what? Iniquity of us all. You know what, you know what iniquity is? The word means to be crooked. But if you want to know how it's genuinely defined, the verse itself defines it, we've turned each one to his own way. That's what iniquity is. You going about your own way. Fighting against God's, fighting against the scripture, going your own way. That's what the Bible describes as iniquity, and that's what Jesus died for. The language of substitution and forgiveness is all over this passage of scripture. And really, there are two things that you and I need. Two things. We need somebody to take our sins, to bear our sins, right? And we need someone who will take them away because I don't want them back. Do you? And so in Leviticus 16, there was a drama played out very powerfully depicting what the coming Messiah would do. Two goats, not just one, because one wouldn't do the comprehensive picture, the comprehensiveness of what Jesus did for us. Two goats. The one, was the throat was slit, the blood was spilled, the blood was put on the altar, thus, you know, covering sin. The other goat was called the what? The scapegoat. The high priest would press his hands upon the head of the goat and confess the sins of Israel over the goat. And then they, a, 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 a mighty man would come and, and lead that goat away because that pictured our sins being taken away. In fact, tradition says they kicked him over the cliff because they didn't want that goat coming back, and neither do you. Jesus is our scapegoat. Years ago when I was in Bible college, I was traveling to UPS, working there, and I worked with um, a guy by name, I drove there with a guy by the name of Nick and Brad Dickinson. Brad and I were Christian studying theology. This Nick was not a Christian. Nick was driving. We witnessed to Nick five days a week for three straight months. Let me tell you something. You witness to somebody that long, you're coming up with all kinds of creative ways to witness. You're going, we're going, and we're going into the pictures of the Old Testament. We're trying everything. He's interested, but he's not biting. And we're getting kind of frustrated. One night, we're talking about some of these pictures in the Old Testament of Jesus, and Nick, with his hands on the steering wheel and upset, looks back at us. I'm next to him. Brad's in the back. You two make Jesus out to be a scapegoat. 
Brad's in the back. He goes, yes! He bounces up against the seat. That's exactly what he was. He's your scapegoat! And Nick surrendered his heart to Jesus Christ. It was the coolest thing. The coolest thing. Look how the writer of Hebrews puts it. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never what? Take away sin. They can never be your scapegoat. No sacrifice in a church, no sacrifice in your life, nothing else can take away your sins, but Jesus is your scapegoat. He's the one who died on your behalf. Several years ago, somebody invited me into their home. Unbeknownst to me, the reason they invited me into their home was they had, they had, uh, they had accumulated six sins that I had committed, uh, committed against them over a 10-year period of time. Can you believe that? I was guilty of a couple of them. But the point is that he held them against me for 10 years. Listen, listen carefully. Though Jesus did bear your sins, he doesn't hold on to them. He sends them away, and aren't you glad? So do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And why should you believe in Jesus? Why should you believe in him? Quickly, because he became like you. We just saw that. He became like you in every way, except without sin. Because he relates to you. He didn't come as a rock star. He didn't come as hip and cool and ripped out. He's a normal-looking dude. And he can relate to you. And because he suffered for you. Became your substitute, your scapegoat, and your salvation. A friend of mine who now lives in the Altoona area, you can pray for him. Grew up with him. We were both wrestlers. He became a tremendous wrestler with great honors. We were literally in kindergarten together. I know, first grade anyway. But we also played football together. He was a scrawny little guy. And we were in line one day at, during practice at a tackling drill. And, and all the halfbacks were like this with their footballs, and we had to run to get to this place and outrun the guy who was trying to tackle us. And you know, you're sort of sizing up who's going to be tackling you, you know. And I saw that I was going to get tackled by the meanest guy in the school. I mean, this guy would rather bite you than tackle you. He just hated everybody. And I was shivering, literally, thinking, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness. All of a sudden, Dave behind me taps me on his shoulder. I'll go, I'll go first. I go, oh, be my guest. <laughs> and broke his shoulder, laying on the ground, writhing in pain. Coach goes, hey, 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 everybody, start running. Do laps, do laps. And the whole team just started doing laps. And every time we came by Dave, as he was writhing on the ground, just kept going by him. There he was writhing. There he was writhing. And every time we went by him, I thought, oh, man, he took my place. He took my place. Jesus took your place. And it wasn't an accident. And it wasn't for temporary relief, but it was for eternal salvation. If you'll place your faith in him. Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, 
and made alive in the Spirit. Do you believe this? God, thank you for this time in your word. We bless your name, and we do ask that you would speak to our hearts to fall in love with Jesus and exalt him, behold him in his glorious, glorious life, his awful death, albeit the very means by which we would be saved. If indeed we place our faith in him. And there are some here who are trusting other things. Some here are probably trusting this church. This church can't save anybody. But Jesus can. If you'll trust him, you too can have eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.